In highly contentious political times, it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that politics are the end-all and the be-all. But that sort of belief has a way of clouding the mind and shrinking the soul.
Excited to be here today. Excited to have you guys with us. Uh, and I get to do our opening prayer today. 
Um, and I'm excited that Jesus is here with us. I never want to be in a space and pretend like he's not here because he is. And um, to everybody, to myself, to all of us who feel like we're living in a vacuum, the truth is, as true as you breathe, as true as your heart is beating, the presence of God is with you right now. He's with us right here. Um, this last week, the Lord's been speaking to me about this uh, uh, image of something we have in Hawaii that's super familiar to us, and that's the Aloha shirt. And he was, I had a dream in which I saw an Aloha shirt, like in this giant display box, like lit up. And he was saying, this is like really important in this period. And so I just wanted this exercise before we pray is, when you get up in the morning, you don't go out without putting clothes on. So the Lord is saying, clothe yourself in love. Put on your Aloha shirt. And we as Blue Water, we can do that. So let's just envision putting on love. And I want to read, um, as we do that, the scripture from Colossians. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that you are actually here. You came in the flesh, flesh and blood, and your particles, your molecules are actually still with us on this earth, and your, your spirit remains with us. So Lord, empower us today to do what you've asked, to put on our aloha, to put on love, to forgive, to be otherworldly, because this is not something we can do without you, Lord. And we thank you for your presence in the room this morning. I thank you for your presence with each of our friends across the airwaves. We just recognize you, Lord. And we thank you, God, for the good uh, worship that we'll have today, for the powerful message that Jordan is bringing. In the name of Jesus, we speak light, we release light to everyone watching, everyone hearing. We say, let your light come. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We acknowledge you as Lord. And um, I'm just gonna sing a little old Christian refrain, just welcome you to join with me in spirit or your voice. You are the Lord of the heavens. You are the Lord of the earth. You are the Lord over angels. You are the Lord over man.
Hey, Blue Water, next week we are going to take communion together as a church. Uh, when Jesus instituted this sacrament, he told his followers uh, to take a cup and a bread and remember Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the face of God, who is generous, loving, and compassionate. A God who would rather die than let sin get in the way of our relationship with him. And we take it together as a church to remind each other that we need each other's support uh, when, we've fallen so, when we've fallen short of living in God's image. So next week, uh, go into your pantry, look for uh, an ordinary piece of bread and maybe a cup of juice, something to symbolize wine and bring it to service with you. And we will all take communion together and a special invitation, if you would. Uh, why don't you take communion sometime between uh, now and Wednesday within your household, uh, videotape it horizontally, and send it to antonio at bluewatermission.org, and uh, we'll put it on uh, the screen so that we can have a sense of the fuller body taking communion together. Uh, I love that an ordinary piece of bread and juice, uh, an ordinary act becomes supernatural, that these become tools to remember the power and the love of Jesus. Aloha everyone, we're so happy to have you with us today. Welcome to Blue Water. Um, we're going to continue our worship with our tithes and offerings. So this is just a time when our normal uh, tenders uh, contribute to the church and uh, put their put their money where their faith is. And so if you're new or visiting, please just keep your wallets where they are. But if you do want to give a tithe, you can send your check in by mail or do it online on our website. Um, even though we're not meeting in big church in person, there is so much happening in our community. So I really hope you're a part of a small group because that's where you can get all the news of what's happening. You can get engaged. Um, and really be a part of what um, the community is doing in these times. So right now, uh, we're just going to pray for our kids. So kids, if you could stand up, we'll pray for you as we get ready for the sermon. Well, Father God, we just thank you so much for our kids. We thank you, Lord, for their excitement and their energy and the ways that they approach you with just discoveries and new things every day. We just bless them today as they go off with Connor and Rolo and uh, spend time with you, Lord, just uh, make your spirit and presence known to them. In Jesus' name, amen. But like having a government that's not beholden to corporate interests or influenced by corporations and lobbyists and that has, it's like the government is separate from those things that doesn't it is in, isn't influenced by those by powerful corporations taking the money out and of taking it. them it's like yeah if you take the money out of the go the, the like monetary influence out of government i think we would have a lot healthier society and government so like freedom of religion you know and all the really i guess a lot of the freedoms that we have in america um but not really saying that oh you're going to be a christian nation but giving people freedom of religion so that they can choose whatever they want and if they choose god that's 
amazing. That's awesome. Um, but that's the same choice that God gave us. Is you can choose whatever you want. You can choose to serve whoever you want. But I prefer that you choose to serve me. I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking a lot about Mother Teresa, and how much it would be so amazing to have a people's choice vote for the most loving people, and they would be the leaders of the government. I also like the the idea of some kind of a system that rewards kindness. You know, wouldn't that be nice? Some kind of a system that, you know, our politicians are known for being like the most sacrificial and generous, and I don't know, good people. That would be nice. Mm -hmm. And like China. Principles, but I feel like you can't go wrong with like going to the Ten Commandments and having everybody strive to follow them. The question is, what do you do after if they don't or if they fail? But there has to be some improvement, some type of um, justice and whatever you want to call it, if we strive for that, if we strive to reset. In this sermon series on culture, we've talked about how different aspects of culture can take you out. Uh, for instance, Culture always involves groups, and group pressure is just so powerful. And all Satan needs is for one group to influence you in one area more than Jesus does, and he's got you. We talked about moral culture. Bad moral culture is not a lack of morality. Bad moral culture is when we emphasize certain favored morals in a way that might tempt us to neglect others. Bad truth culture is when we're so committed to having certain outcomes in life that we're willing to neglect little realities along the way in order to get them. And all of these components, group pressures, morality, truth culture, combine together in this arena that we call politics. Politics exacerbates the dangers of groupism, of bad selective morality, of selective truthfulness, because one, politics are combative and contentious oftentimes, and two, because governments falsely promise to be the solution of your life. So in healthy political culture, you respect politics. Oh, you give Caesar his due but not to the exclusion of giving God his. Uh, the U.S. government as a social institution is larger, more intrusive, and more powerful in our society than it has ever been. At the beginning of the United States, uh, the gross domestic product, the government's share of it was around 4%. Today, the government's share of the gross domestic product in our country is over 40% and during the COVID pandemic is probably more like 60 or 70%. It's huge. So the government role in our society has become epically large, which means that whoever controls the government is in a position to influence more of our lives than ever before. 
Uh, and today, uh, there are those who want to make the role and influence of the government larger still, which means that in America, elections become higher and higher stakes, more and more contentious. Uh, and I think the stakes are higher right now than they have been since the American Civil War. And the outcome of our current political contests will have, I think, huge consequences for our future. So you should probably be deeply concerned about those contests. You guys deeply concerned about those contests? Yes, but you're not saying. Uh, but, but in highly contentious political times, it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that politics is the end all and be all. That's the danger. And that sort of mindset has a way of clouding the mind and shrinking the soul. So today I'm gonna to talk about politics because it's just so fun to talk publicly about politics. And I'm sure this will generate absolutely zero emails come Monday. I have a lot to worry about when I speak about political culture uh, at Blue Water Mission. I have to worry about all of these legalities because if I appear publicly to campaign for one of the political candidates, then our church gets prosecuted and we lose our tax exempt status. So I have to be very careful what I say, but that is nothing. Legal challenges are nothing compared to the threat of offense. It is so easy for me to offend people and to create offense in our community and to break people off and, and, and cause them to stomp out, uh, metaphorically speaking. So, so I don't know, guys. I'm just going to try. I, I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm just going to try to talk about politics. Oh, yeah, you clap now. Um, uh, because I think it's important. The, the reason is that politics are what's on everybody's mind. So I kind of have to address it. And I think there are some dangerous things going on. One of my, the most influential verses in my life comes from the story of David's coronation at Hebron from 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, I know that's a very popular chapter among the staffers. Uh, so what's happening is that David is being crowned king with this, it's this sea change of, of, of political status in the nation of Israel. And all the various tribes said representatives to the coronation. And you get a list of all the representatives they send. And what, what's going on is that all the tribes send armed men because that's very impressive and powerful. Like Asher sends like 40,000 armed soldiers saying, we're really important and we're behind you, David. But the men of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, uh, the tribe of Issachar is, is, is different. The, the verse is, is this. From Issachar came men who understood the times and knew what they should do. 200 chiefs uh, with all their relatives under their command. Uh, and I love that verse. I remember hearing it when I was in high school and deciding right then that I would try to become wise politically. I would go on to have a PhD in political science. Uh, the wisdom from the verse is that in politically epic times and politically important times, 200 men of wisdom are easily worth 40,000 armed soldiers because it's tough to understand the times that you're in when they're happening. 
particularly if they are politically contentious and changeful times. God give us wisdom, right? God give us wisdom that we might know what we should do, like the men of, of Issachar. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Here's what I think is happening in our political culture in, in the U.S. these days. Please understand, I want to talk about political culture, not about election issues, not about political issues that we should hold as most important today, but about what's driving society's political behaviors and how it makes people view things. Deconstructionists are trying to use the government to push, push their agenda in the world. And they are mostly using liberals to do it. You don't have to be a deconstructionist just because you're on the more liberal side of the political spectrum, but deconstructionists are using the liberal side of the spectrum uh, more than not today. And conservatives are pushing back against it. Are you following me so far? Yes. Neither side, neither liberals nor conservatives, has competent leadership. There, I said it. Which plays right into the hands of the deconstructionists. Uh, now you might wonder what I mean by that term deconstructionists. If you've been around uh, Blue Water for a while, perhaps you know. I gave a whole sermon series on culture, uh, largely about the danger of deconstructionism in early 2018. Y'all remember that? Um, because I was so concerned about deconstructionism as a social force. And in that sermon series, I predicted that deconstructionism would become more intense in our country. And man, was I right. Uh, I nailed it. PhD in poli-sci. It counts for something. Um, deconstructionism goes by different names. It was just the name that I use. Sometimes it's simply called postmodernism or political postmodernism or moral postmodernism modernism more recently. It's been called disintegrationism. Uh, and uh, it is a well-studied movement, a well-studied phenomenon in, in political theory, certainly, but also in philosophy and also in psychology. Uh, historically as well, historically we see that great cultures throughout history have a tendency to deconstruct themselves in their late stages and to collapse as a result. Uh, we see it in Rome, we saw it in the French Revolution, uh, we saw it more recently and I think perhaps most poignantly in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, uh, it's a cultural revolution. The state and the populace set out to completely deconstruct their entire historical culture. Uh, so deconstructionism is an ideology, uh, but it's also a profound human impulse. Uh, the impulse of deconstructionism is to respond to the struggles in life by rising up against the matrix, rising up against the system, uh, whatever the system might be. It's about dishonoring your proverbial father and mother uh, to wipe away, you know, the, the whole dang system that you have been brought up in. If there are termites in the house, dang it, you burn the whole house. And that's kind of the deconstructionist impulse. Um, you can't improve society unless you first um, destroy 
the pillars of society. That's sort of the idea. It was an idea that gained a lot of ground in the 20th century, in 20th century politics. And the actions of deconstruction are empowering. I mean, rebellion is always empowering, right? Ask any teenager. Can I get a man from the parents of teenagers? Yeah, we all know this. But once you deconstruct, once you destroy pillars, then what? What follows is always the important question. Where does it lead? It turns out it's pretty easy to burn a city down. It's pretty hard to build a city. Uh, and that is a social challenge. Deconstructionism attacks everything by its nature because it considers the system itself to be uh, the problem. And so one of the first things that deconstructionism attacks is, is truth. You know, deconstructionists think that uh, you can't reason with someone who's been brainwashed by the system. So don't bother reasoning. Don't bother debating. Uh, if you disagree with us, you are betraying the group. You are betraying the cause. And it gets very mob-y, very mobby in its applications. We see that uh, through uh, history. It lends itself to mob culture, to group think, moral selectiveness and truth selectiveness, all those cultural dangers that we've talked about in this series so far. And I think the Chinese Cultural Revolution is such a great example of this. We have people in our church who lived through that and went through it. A hallmark of the Chinese Cultural Revolution is that people who did not think appropriately were taken into public settings, forced to wear a sign that, that declared their sin and to repent publicly in front of crowds. It was like a super intense application of cancel culture. And it happened everywhere. It was fantastically destructive and it ended up killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people. <clears throat> Not surprisingly, scripture warns us against this impulse that we have. I mentioned the command, honor your father and your mother, that it might go well with you in the land the Lord is giving you. God knows that our fathers and our mothers are not perfect people. God knows that our families can be hurtful, such that he saw fit to make the command, honor your father and your mother, a command, right? Because he knows it's not easy. And so he made it one of the big 10 commands that it may well go, that it may go well with you in the land that he's given you. Because he knows that if we start just dishonoring and deconstructing what came before us, it will foul up the generations that come after us in our country. And so we can't be that. We can't be wholesale deconstructionists. We've got to figure out how to honor father and mother no matter what in some fashion. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a wise man who goes into the storehouse and brings out the old with the new in combination. Jesus said that because he was explaining to people that he wasn't out to overthrow anything not the religious establishment. He was only trying to improve, to complete, to bring full understanding to what God was doing and to improve his society that way. And then there's just the fact that Christianity has moral absolutes, right? God's precepts are timeless. You don't get to deconstruct them over time. They last from generation to generation in perpetuity. Uh, and this is important for us to understand. So, all that said, 
you know, I was describing the political culture of today. I don't think Donald Trump won the election in 2016 because people like loudmouths. I don't think that's why Donald Trump won. I think he won because he was the guy that without apology kind of stood up and said, this is making me really uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of falseness. There's a lot of danger in this. And he spoke for what ended up being a silent majority. There were things happening in society that were sweeping. And more than any other guy, he became symbolic of protest uh, against it. You might remember that the Republican Party did not want Trump to be the nominee. Fox News openly campaigned against Trump being the nominee. But the people were like, yeah, I, I, I don't buy into the political correctness and the group think. I need someone who's just willing to say the emperor has no clothes and so forth. Better or worse, a Trump presidency defied all uh, expectations and surveys. Conservatives, political conservatives, preserve. That's their nature, right? They preserve things. Uh, sometimes too much. The danger on the conservative side of the political spectrum is that you refuse to change things that need to be changed, right? But deconstructionists change endlessly. And um, they can't help but get more extreme over time as they give in to the deconstructionist impulse. And people notice this, right? And it makes certain people really uncomfortable. And what we are seeing in the American political environment is you know, not just a, a little liberality, not just a little progressivism, but extreme leaps of progress uh, in, in a deconstructionist direction. Uh, you go through some of the hot button social issues of today. Abortion. Abortion is one. Nobody talks about abortion uh, uh, much these days because it is just so contentious. Uh, I can remember that during the Clinton administration, his uh, slogan where abortion was concerned was this. Um, safe, legal, and rare. Right? Because abortion needed to be legal. It needed to be safe because there were rare instances in which it needed to be used. Uh, now, uh, the major plank of the platform, the Democratic National Committee, is that America needs to be um, amenable to late-term abortions. We are, all, we are one of only seven countries in the world uh, that make late-term abortion legal, which means that you can abort a baby in the third trimester. Um, and uh, some of the political candidates today, I'll just put it that way, um, even advocate for end-term abortion, which is if you accidentally go into labor and deliver the baby, you can, you can kill it as long as you don't cut the umbilical cord first. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a drift, right? That's a drift. And it's happened in just over the last 15 years or so. Um, social policy is another example. This is really the first election in American history where socialism has been seen as a legitimate option, you know? And there's a socialist candidate almost won uh, the Democratic nomination. Uh, for a presidential candidate. Sexuality and gender has been deconstructed at an ever-accelerating rate. I think we're all familiar with that. Um, 
was a representative court case that I read about uh, this week. It went to the federal court and it comes from a, a, a case of adoption and fostering out of the state of Idaho. Um, some grandparents were forbidden by the state of Idaho to take custody of their one-year-old granddaughter, uh, even though the parents had become unfit. And the reason that the state of Idaho gave for rejecting these grandparents as guardians was that the grandparents were considered sexually oppressive. Oppressive. Uh, they were not um, safe enough uh, for the one-year-old girl. It turns out that uh, when the Idaho State Child Welfare Department uh, vets uh, candidates for adoption, they ask them questions like this. If at 15 years old, your daughter wanted to undergo hormone therapy to change her sexual appearance, would you support the decision and transport her to her appointments? That's a question. Uh, here's another one. Would you allow your daughter, uh, were she to declare as a lesbian, to have a girl spend the night as a romantic partner in your home, again, at the age of 15. And the grandparents uh, were devout um, Seventh-day Adventists, and, and they said, well, no, we're not gonna let children have sex overnight in our home, uh, even though um, they made a statement saying that they would care for the child no matter what. <laughs> um, and they were, they were rejected and went to the federal court. The federal court eventually decided in favor of the parents. But this isn't even an extreme example. States are doing this all over the union. Uh, but you know, consider what it means. You are an unfit parent if you are unwilling to have powerful foreign chemicals injected into your child's body during an identity crisis that research shows is usually temporary in children. I don't wanna put my kid through with a lot of foreign chemicals. It's just a kid. I'm not gonna let children have sex in my home overnight. I don't care what the situation is. Homosexual, heterosexual, no way. But you see how the state is reaching in deconstructing biological families in order to support a sexuality agenda that it finds important. Representative case. Anyway, that scares me, right? Um, and that's, de that's the state in service of deconstruction. There are educational examples, you know, we've debated a lot in our society Issues like speech on campus and the free consideration of ideas, the university is not the open place that it used to be, are calls to deconstruct major portions of our government heritage, including deconstruction of the Electoral College. You know, the, right now there's a big controversy about the suitability of packing the Supreme Court uh, with additional judges in order to push through contentious social policies. Uh, the defund the police, of course, is a really big deal right, uh, which is a major deconstruction of a pretty major social pillar. Um, recently, uh, our national border uh, has been in dispute, right? There are some representatives in Congress that say just having a border is an example of um, racial oppression and America should not have one. As late as 2006, senators 
Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama voted to appropriate funds in the Senate to build a wall on the Mexican border. That, they did that in 2006. And in the 2016 election, just 10 years later, uh, Trump's suggestion to build a, wa a wall on the border was seen as the height of racism and completely inappropriate. And, you know, politicians change their mind on things. My point is, in just 10 years' time, the drift on that issue has been huge. And people are noticing stuff like this, right? Religion is, of course, another thing that's being deconstruction, deconstructed in our society. And it, it's news to nobody that Christianity is, is being cast in worse and worse light as the years go by. Christianity, what is Christianity? Well, Christianity is oppressive to women, right? It's certainly oppressive to gays. Islam is a, is a religion of peace, right? Evidently, they treat women and gays well. Mm. But that's not the point, because in our society, Christianity has been the dominant religion, and it needs to be deconstructed. It needs to be criticized down to the, the bone. Uh, we have organizations today like you know, BLM, not, not the sentiment, but the organization who openly calls for the destruction of white civilization. Right? That was on their website. They removed that page recently because it got them in some hot water eventually. But really, the destruction of white civilization. Now, right, the leaders of BLM are just being them, right? I mean, it's legitimately what they think. So they're free to say anything. And they're avowed Marxists, right? So that's what they do. That's not my point. My point is that people increasingly accept that as a reasonable viewpoint in our culture, right? And they say, oh, yeah, we can totally work with that. We can totally work with that. But an end of a civilization is, is a very deconstructed thing. Uh, and so I'm just describing the, the drift, right? The new extremity uh, that we're becoming comfortable with uh, in society. So, you know, there's all that. And that kind of wholesale deconstruction of so many big things takes a lot of power to pull off. Uh, so it requires a lot of government power uh, to pull it off. You need government to be very big and very intrusive if you're going to make changes like that in society. Um, this is extra worrisome because government naturally wants to grow in size and power. Government naturally wants to be more powerful. Uh, political theorists have understood this uh, for a long time. Uh, when you have a government in a society, there will always be a group of people who kind of make their living off of that government. And so to make a better living, they want the government to grow. They want the government to appropriate more money and more power because it's good for the political class. Political rulers want government to be big because they want to be able to say that government is important. They want government to intrude in areas of your life so that you care about them. And so you elect them to office and stuff like that. So if left unchecked, government is always going to grow. But a big, powerful government can use its power for good or for ill. And that's the trouble. That's the challenge. And governments never say, we want to grow big because we want more control. They don't say that. Governments say, we need to grow big so that we can guarantee justice better. 
That's what governments say. You know, socialism, fascism, are ideolo ideologies based on justice, right? That's how they justify themselves. That's how they have justified themselves throughout history. And we need to kind of remember that right now, I think. One of the most striking quotes from one of the most influential leaders of the 20th century. We do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if it is not built on internal social justice. And the man who said that, of course, was Adolf Hitler. You have to be careful in what kind of power you give government uh, because whose social justice is he after? Whose social justice will government guarantee? And many people in America are conditioned to distrust big government because after all, the whole American experiment, the whole American revolution and the constitution was based on the idea that government could and should be limited. Never happened before in world history until the American revolutionaries pulled it off. So we have all of these checks and balances and the bill of rights and individual rights and stuff like that. And so there's always going to be a pushback in America against deconstructionism. And we're seeing the schism today and it's making our political environment very contentious. And the reason I went through that at some length is because I want everybody to understand that the pushback against deconstructionism and sort of the drift toward extremity is not a pushback against justice per se. You can't say that about people, right? People aren't pushing back against it because they're bigoted racists. They may just be pushing back against it because the rate of change and the things being changed are huge, huge. It's been a very tumultuous time and there is an awful lot on the table right now. All that rambling kind of gets us to our scripture for the day. I'm going to read from First uh, Samuel chapter 8. I'll read the whole chapter. It's kind of short. Uh, and this is a story about the Israelites wanting to change their politics. <clears throat> When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges or leaders for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They didn't do a very good job as leaders. They turned aside for dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So that experiment was a failure. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They need to fix this injustice. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They want a monarchy now. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing it to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. 
He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials, your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, ah, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, all right, everyone go back to your own town. The Israelites want a king. They want a powerful uh, government because uh, there is injustice in the land. And they want a king to fight their battles. You know, they want the government to take care of it. And the Lord basically says, okay, but are you leaving space for God? Right? And that's just it. It's like, okay, I mean, that's fine. We can work with that. But, you know, are you leaving space for me to do uh, what I do? Render under Caesar, Caesar's, but render under God what's his. Be careful what the government takes over. Do you need a government to do it all? You need a king to do it all, or can you leave some space for God uh, in your world? For uh, generosity, for communities to come together and problem solve problems for themselves, to find their own path to security. I mean, that sort of thing. So, I don't know, maybe because uh, of scripture, maybe because I'm a historian, uh, I'm cautious uh, about big government. I tend to come down on the side of limited government. I want government to stay out of things, uh, mostly uh, because I think that works better. For instance, I kind of want government as much as possible to stay out of the economy. I'm kind of a, a free market guy uh, because I think that's the best way to raise people out of poverty and to generalize prosperity on the earth. When free market capitalism began its ascent in the early 19th century, 95% of of the world population lived at the level of subsistence poverty. And today, less than 10% of the world population does. And that's a pretty good statistic. But there will always be people on the margins of that prosperity that need care, that need special provision. And that's where Christian grace and radical generosity come in. For instance, this week, I got a gift card from the Pewter family. They sent me a gift card to a Swank clothing store with this post-it. <clears throat> For the Jordan Sang Wardrobe Fund, please do something. So there you go. Christian grace and generosity shown for those on the edge of society. I really appreciate that. 
Similarly, I want the government to kind of stay out of my mind, stay out of my thinking. I love free speech and free thought and free debate because I love seeking and I love allowing people to seek and to make their own free choices. Big government always reduces personal freedom. That's an axiom throughout history and that worries me a lot. I, of course, want the government to stay out of my religion. I'm very American that way. I don't want um, the government uh, to prevent me uh, from believing what I believe, and I don't want the government to intrude and restrict what I believe in any way. But more than that, I think this. Good government only comes from good people. That's what I think at the bottom of my heart. Good government can only come from good people. Prosperity only comes from industrious people. Peace and unity only come from mature, self-sacrificial people. Government cannot provide those things. Does the government create good people? No. No, it can't. I was a political scientist uh, previously. Uh, and the father of political science, uh, it's sometimes said, is a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville, who is a Frenchman who uh, worked in the 19th century. Um, one object of study for him was uh, the differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. The American Revolution succeeded fantastically, and the French Revolution, although it happened at the same time with a lot of the same ideals, fell apart and created mass murder and ultimately dictatorship. And de Tocqueville was trying to figure out why that is. He said this, the best laws cannot make a constitution work in the face of bad morals. Morals can turn the worst laws to advantage. That is a commonplace truth, but one to which my studies are always bringing me back. It is the central point in all of my understanding. That good government, no matter how good its design, no matter how good its intentions, can't last unless people are good, unless people have a healthy moral and personal culture. So I think, you know, we can rely on government to enforce laws, but you can't rely on a government to make society just. It just won't work. You can rely on government to wage wars and to end wars, but you can't rely on a government to make true peace. You can rely on the government for some economic support, but you can't rely on a government to make people prosperous. The people ultimately need to do that. You can render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but you better appreciate the role and the power of God and godliness in the world in your society. It's not all about politics. It's not all about the government, even though there are forces making you think that it is. You're not righteous because you object, object to oppressive policies. And you're not righteous because you object to oppressive taxes. You're righteous if you honor God and serve everyone around you. That's how it works. You are not righteous because you vote the right way uh, or because you align yourself against the right political enemies. You are righteous if you sacrifice yourself for your enemies, according to Jesus. 
And in these times, we just need to keep that straight. We need to remember the power of grace, the power of love, the power of non-judgmentalism, and just the truth that politics are not the end all and be all, that we don't really need to rely on the government to solve really nasty problems for us. Not all of them. And we want to be careful, even though political contests are increasingly high stakes in our country. I guess what I want to say at bottom is government is not your hope. Politics, not where your hope lies. Government might become your enemy, but it will never be your hope. Don't give it that due. Only God gets that part. And don't let politics make you a groupist. Don't let the sense of political urgency make you bow to groupthink or group pressure. Don't make the sense of political urgency in our society today cause you to be morally selective, to emphasize certain segments of morality while you ignore others, because that creates moral collapse. Uh, and don't let political urgencies today cause you to be selective in how you apply truth and facts. You got to have honest, humble, open conversations. You Christians, especially you, need to respect truth in all of its forms. Don't let political urgency make you judgmental. Don't let political urgency make you forget the power of the grace of the gospel. Oh, Father, I pray for a healthy political culture in contentious times. We trust in you first and foremost, no matter what. No matter what the system is, no matter what the political outcomes are. And I pray, Lord, that you make us righteous individuals. Because from a righteous people ultimately comes righteous governance. I pray, Lord, even as politics have moved epically over the last 20 years, that the Holy Spirit would move socially in our culture and that you would make yourself a topic of discussion, even as these contentious policies have dominated discussion. Let's pray, Lord, that you would show us your hand in our nation because ultimately that's where all the good things come from um, we are humble lord and we are yours and we're doing our best in jesus name amen does your world feel a little chaotic right now i'm thankful for kingdom culture that's filled with peace despite what our environment looks like <laughs> And if you need prayer, we got people waiting to pray for you. Just email julie at bluewatermission.org and someone will get back to you to pray for you. Bless you this week and have, don't forget to have lots of fun and exercise. And peace. And peace. Amen. Phoenix, amen. Amen. Yo. Bye.